Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 34 through 37. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. We're continuing in our series, Mark's Biblical Answers to Puzzling Questions. As we said, we've ventured forth into this series in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, 16 chapters. It covers many, many topics. It doesn't go into a great amount of detail, but it gives us a, a, a highlight of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, up through his death and resurrection, and he touches on so many topics. Now, Mark chapter 13 should be read and studied carefully in connection with Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21. All three of these chapters give us a report of our Lord's Olivet Discourse in which he prophetically revealed the conditions that would prevail in Palestine and among the Gentile nations after his rejection and resurrection and prior to his second coming. So understand, what we see in Matthew, actually chapters 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, deal with events preceding the second coming of the Lord. Sometimes we as Christians, we make the mistake of reading a passage and thinking it automatically applies to us. You Remember, you have to look at the context, because that's talking about the second coming. The rapture comes before the second coming, all right? You have the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, and then the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of that seven-year tribulation. Now, as we said, each of these chapters cover a number of topics. Chapter 13 is no different. The first four verses deal with the temple destruction. Verses 5 through 13, the beginning of woes. Verses 14 through 23, the great tribulation. Verses 24 through 27, the coming of the Son of Man. Verses 28 through 30, the lesson of the fig tree. And verses 32 through 37, the necessity of being ready always in view of the unknown hour of Christ's coming. Now, because this subject is so broad, and our purpose in this series is to give a brief overview of the gospel, we're going to deal with this, this discourse and its prophetic nature at another time. This morning, what we want to look at is these four verses, verses 34 through 37, and consider what this passage has to say and how it might apply to us as believers, as the church of Christ. We'll see three things. Number one, our authority in overseeing God's field. Number two, our activity in undertaking God's work. And then number three, our affection in regard to our longing for God's glory and Christ's return. So notice with me in verse 34. The scripture says, For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house 
and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work. He and commanded the porter to watch. This deals with our authority. You understand, for us as New Testament believers, God has authorized us to carry out his work on earth. We see that starting out here, he gave authority to his servants. The word authority, it means to charge. It involves power, authority, liberty, jurisdiction, or strength. It involves the power of choice, the liberty of doing as one pleases, the power of authority, being able to influence others and have the right or privilege to do so, and the power or the rule of government. It's the power to carry out the commands given to us and to exercise the authority over others. The two institutions God established for carrying out his plan of the ages, the family and the church. God established the family in the Garden of Eden. Ever since then, the family dynamic has come under attack even more, well, more so today than ever. So many ways people are trying to redefine a family. They're trying to introduce factors into it that God never intended. You have the husband, you have the wife, and then you have children. And it's supposed to be in that order, by the way. And then from there, you have generations that continue. It's not Adam and Steve. It's not Liz and Eve. No, it's man and woman. God created Adam And Eve, he established the home. And it was established to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. We overlook that too frequently when we're willing to give in to these many different ideologies and views as to what a family dynamic should involve. This is evidenced throughout scripture. The other institution God established is the church. The church has been under constant attack since Calvary. Now, I know there are varying views as to when the church began. Some say it was, it was uh, started by Christ during his earthly ministry when he said, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it continued from there. Personally, I believe the church started at Pentecost. You know, Christ laid the groundwork for the church. I believe he had to die because he tells us he purchased the church with his blood. So I believe that the death of Christ had to take place. But the church was established uh, there at Pentecost. Christ laid the groundwork for the church in his ministry. And then it was established and empowered at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. That's another topic as well. But God instituted the church for the purpose of carrying out his work on earth. Satan's continuing efforts to slow down the work of the church have been nonstop, and he is going to continue to do so. But God has promised throughout the New Testament to bless his church. The best definition I've ever heard as to a church is that uh, what I learned from Dr. James Crumpton, great preacher of yesteryear. He said a church is a body of saved baptized believers voluntarily banded together for the purpose of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, propagating the gospel, and edifying the saints. Worship the Lord, reach others, teach one another. 
we see that principle set forth in the Word of God. God has promised His blessing upon the New Testament church. Not a denomination, not an association, not a convention, not a college or university, not a mission board, or not a campus ministry. That is not to say those organizations cannot be beneficial and cannot be helpful in the carrying out of the gospel, but God has established the local church for the purpose of reaching the world, and all work ought to be done through the local church. That is my belief. That is my conviction. I trust it is yours as well. But Christ made that fact very clear during his ministry. Matthew chapter 16. I referred to this a moment ago. Here is the passage. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 17. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, one-fifth of the Great Commission, Jesus declared, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The Great Commission was given to the disciples as those who would begin or those who would start those local churches and the gospel would go out through. The Great Commission was given in five parts, one from each of the gospels, one from the book of Acts, all by the resurrected Lord. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Luke, he said, uh, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations. In John, Jesus said, peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus declared, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Paul reiterated this in his instruction to Timothy, the importance of the work of the local church in 2 Timothy 2.2, when he said, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Ever since the time of Christ, churches have been established and continuing to do the work of the Lord Jesus Christ somewhere in the world. And it is God's plan that that message, that that work, that that uh, effort continue until the time he returns and calls the church out of this world. Yet, he is the one who has authorized us to meet today. He's the one who's authorized us to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard of evangelist D.L. Moody? Dio Moody was visiting a lady one day. She had asked him to come by and visit with her. And while he was speaking with her, her husband came down the stairs and insisted on knowing who he was. Mr. Moody introduced himself as an evangelist that was speaking in a, a meeting in the area. 
He said, I want you to know that you're not welcome in my house. I want you to mind your own business. Mr. Moody said, I'll have you to know I am minding my business, for my business is the souls of men. And I believe God wants to save you. Went on to witness to the man, and the man got saved. You see, we have been authorized by the Lord to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You might share a gospel track with somebody. You might go ahead and give them your testimony. You may invite them to church and they say, well, who do you think you are? What right do you have to talk to me like that? Well, as long as we're not speaking in a condescending manner, but in a kind, compassionate manner, we say, well, I have the right given to me by the Lord himself. God loves you. He died for you. He cares for you. And I wanted to share this great truth with you. You know, we don't need to be arrogant and condescending. We don't need to be rude and objectionable. We don't need to be in your face when speaking with somebody. But we can compassionately speak with authority. You know, if somebody says, well, what right do you have to talk to me about that? And say, well, I don't know. Well, you should. Word of God tells us to go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. You see, the Word of God gives us the authority to do what God wants us to do. Our authority is that of overseeing God's field. What is the field? The Scripture tells us the field is the world. You remember the story of the, the sower and the seed, how he sowed seed on four different types of soil. And he told this story, and afterward his disciples asked him, what does this mean? We don't understand. Of course, Jesus was speaking in a parable, so he explained it to them. The four types of soil were four types of the heart. The seed is the word of God, and the sower is that witness who spreads the word of God, and people will receive the word in one of four ways, or the word will have an impact on people in one of four ways. And... In that, Jesus said, the field is the world. Yes, we are authorized by the Lord today as a church and as New Testament believers to be a witness to whosoever will. Amen. Then notice also in verse 34, we see our activity. For the scripture says, and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work. You see, we are not just to be overseeing God's field. We're not just to be sitting back and watching. We're not somebody sitting up in a guard tower just observing what's taking place. We're supposed to be someone who's in the field working, observing what's going on around us and carrying out the task God has given us. You see the word work, Greek word ergon. We get our word ergonomics from it. But we find that it appears 176 times in Scripture. It's work. It's a deed. It's doing. It's labor. It involves employment in which anyone is occupied, or it is an act, deed, or thing done. You know, a lot of people think work is a dirty word. No. God has blessed the idea of work. God has given us a task to do, and the ability to do it. A couple of things we note here. The general work of the believer. Notice, to every man his work. What is that? It's the work 
of the Lord. The first order of business God addressed was caring for the Garden of Eden. When he created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, Adam, I want you to go ahead and care for the Garden. Can you imagine? Talk about an easy job. (laughs) People talk about how difficult their jobs are, how tough it is, how terrible an employer they have. Well, his employer was God. And all he had to do was care for the garden. You think, wow, that was a pretty big job. What did that involve? It involved walking around, looking at everything. There weren't any weeds. Weeds hadn't come on the scene just yet. So he didn't have to spend his time on his needs working and digging and, 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 and weeding out stuff. No, he just walked around and kept an eye on it, made sure everything was okay. Not that anything was going to happen, but talk about an easy job. But it doesn't matter if a job is easy or hard. When God gives us a task to do, we ought to do it. But the principle set forth is that we reap and we sow. You're familiar with the law of the harvest. You've heard this before. Uh, The Bible tells us in Galatians, we reap what we sow. The law of harvest tells us three things. tells us, number one, we reap what we sow. You sow potatoes, you're going to reap potatoes, not tomatoes, even though they sound alike. You reap more than what you sow. You plant one seed in the ground and a plant is produced that might yield a number of of fruit or vegetables. Think of an ear of corn. One ear of corn produces a stalk and each stalk will have a number of ears of corn on it and each ear of corn has hundreds, up to hundreds of, of kernels of corn. Pretty amazing when you think about that. We reap more than what we sow and we reap later than what we sow. Just because you put a, 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 corn, a kernel of corn in the ground and you cover it up with dirt and you water it and you make sure it's a nice sunny day and all, you're not going to stand there and watch the thing grow. It's not Jack's magic beans. No, it's going to take time. It's going to come along later. The problem for a lot of us is fruit comes along much later than we would prefer. However, the fact of the matter is the law of the harvest tells us you reap what you sow. And God has given the work of the church to us as members of the church, to us as the body of Christ, to carry out his task, his duty, his work. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, addresses those who miss this point. You see, Paul told the Thessalonian believers that Christ is coming again, just like I mentioned to you a few minutes ago. Well, some of them, they got so excited, they said, this is great. How about if we just go ahead and quit our jobs and we'll go out and stand on a hillside and we'll look up in the air and we'll wait for him to return. There's no need for us to waste our time and effort working. After all, he's coming again. Well, what of that? For even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. So interesting. He talks about them being disorderly, and it is in conjunction with not working and being busybodies. It is now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye brethren... Be not weary in well-doing. So Paul addresses this. And by the way, it talks about the importance of eating your own bread. We reap the fruit of our labor. False governmental systems that take from the rich 
to give to the poor, that try to make everyone equal, devalue the benefit of working, pride in ownership, and doing our best. The scripture talks about how we ought to excel in the things of the Lord, not sit back and let somebody else do the work and reap the benefit of their labor. No, God's will has always been that his workers, his saints, would be actively engaged in his work. That's us. We, as God's children, ought to be active and busy in the work of the Lord. We ought not to be guilty of taking more than we give, lounging more than we labor, or criticizing more than we contribute. You see, Jesus himself condemned that very attitude when he declared, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. John five seventeen. The scripture makes it clear of the importance of the believer's labor. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We are to abound in doing that which God has given us to do. 1 Corinthians 3.13, Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. The attitude that, well, I don't care. Just, it's good enough. You know, aren't you glad the Lord didn't take that attitude as he approached Calvary? No. Jeremiah 48.10, Cursed is he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully. Thomas Edison said, I never did anything by accident, nor did any of my inventions come by accident. They came by work. You see, not only do we have the authority to do the work of God, we have the responsibility to do the work of God. Well, there's the general work, but then there's the specific work. Notice it says, to every man his work. God established his overall plan for world evangelization. It's to be accomplished through the members of the local church, but he's also given specific tasks of service to his saints. God has chosen that I be the pastor of this church. It is a misnomer for people to think that's the only position of importance in a church. Every one of you are equally important here. For the scripture tells us God puts the members in the body as it pleaseth him. You will meet people I will never meet. You will have opportunities I will never realize. You may go to places I never will. You are just as important to this church family as anyone else. And never let anybody tell you differently. For God has selected you and God has placed you here and God has gifted you. You know, God gives every one of his children a spiritual gift. He gives us the ability to carry out the work he has assigned to us individually. God has a plan for each one of us here today. And he expects us to do 
His work according to the plan He has drawn up for each of us. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit divideth to every man severally as He will. God has gifted you. He might give you the ability to witness to people, to talk about Scripture more easily than others. He might give you the ability to give more, more readily than others. He might give you the ability to be a servant more than others. See, there are a number of spiritual gifts, and we've spent time on that in the past. We're not going to go back through that this morning. But God gifts each one of us with that special endowment that he wants us to use for his honor and his glory. What are you doing with what the Lord has given you the ability to do? God doesn't want us to just sit down and enjoy what's going on. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It is one in which we are to be participants and actually actively involved in. Ephesians 4.12 tells us, God gives gifts to the church for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God can use you to be an encouragement and a blessing and a help to others. But not if you don't do anything with the gifts God has given you to use. An unidentified boss one day said to his employee, nobody does mediocre better than you. Not necessarily a compliment you'd want to get from somebody over, th- over you, right? Someone else said, there's always too many people who reach for the stool when there's a piano to be moved. You see, God wants everybody to be involved in his work. God has given the general work, the work of the ministry to the local church, but he's given a specific task to each one of us to be that saint of his that he wants us to be. Then lastly, also in verse 34, it goes on to say, and commanded the porter to watch. So not only has he authorized us to be over his his field, his work, he's given us the ability, the command to be active in it, but now he wants us to demonstrate our affection while we're working. You ever been to a store and you notice one, one employee is, is just a pleasant, helpful person to be around. around, and the other one is rude and obnoxious and unkind and impatient with everybody they deal with. They might both be getting as much done as the other, but one is going to be much more effective in dealing with others. That's the way God wants us to look at our work for him. It's not work because I've got to work, I've got to get the job done, no, but to work because we have an opportunity to do so. The word watch, it means to be awake, to be vigilant, to be alert. It means to give attention to or to be cautious while we labor. As we mentioned earlier, we are to be aware of our surroundings, aware of the opportunities and aware of the pitfalls, aware of people who are in need or people who may very well be harmful in their approach. We need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And in serving the Lord, we ought to do so not because we have to, but because we love Him. 
Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Something he says at both the beginning and the end of that verse, help us to understand that. I beseech ye, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God. It is God's mercy that has allowed us to hear the gospel and to respond by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. It is God's mercy by which he offers to freely forgive us for our sin. Then at the close of that verse, he says, which is your reasonable service? Is it not reasonable? Does not it make sense that we give our lives in service to him who has given so much for us? We honor our servicemen and women at Memorial Day, other times of the year. And one of the phrases that are heard frequently that, at that time are, all gave some, but some gave all. Meaning they gave their life for their country and their countrymen. Beloved, the truth of that statement pales in comparison to he the Lord of glory who came from heaven and gave himself a sacrifice on Calvary's cross that all mankind might have the hope of eternal life and the forgiveness of sin. Yes, he truly gave all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a wondrous gift has been offered to us. How can we in any way but through a heart of affection, adoration, and appreciation serve him who loved us so? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 tells us, But the end of all things at hand, be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Just as this porter was commanded to watch, was commanded to give attention to his task. We as God's children must do the same, giving attention to him who has called us to serve and to others whom he has commanded us to serve, being aware that folks around us are desperately in need of this great truth. And all the while, while we serve him, we are reminded, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, he has done so much for us. Paul, just prior to his execution, declared, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. The question we ask today is what will you be doing when the Lord returns? Will you be overseeing the field? Will you be undertaking 
the work that has, God has given you to do? And will you be looking for and longing for his return? Working without watching leads to labor without purpose. Watching without working leads to idleness without passion. I close with this illustration. World War II veteran Elmer Bentener once wrote about a bombing raid he led over a town in Germany. He said, our B-17, Tondaleo is what they called it, was barraged by flak from Nazi anti-aircraft guns. That wasn't unusual, but on this particular mission, he said, our gas tanks were hit. Later, as I reflected the miracle of a 20-millimeter shell piercing the fuel tank without touching off an explosion, he said, it just doesn't seem possible. So on the morning following the raid, uh, he and others went down to the crew chief and asked for a souvenir of that unbelievable task. What they wanted was uh, the, the shell that was in that fuel tank. The, chief, uh, the crew chief told, uh, told them that not just one shell, but 11 shells had been found in the gas tanks. They thought 11 unexploded shells. What is the chance of that happening? Well... After an investigation, they found the shells had been diffused. Czech prisoners who were used to work in, as laborers in uh, explosives factories. And one of those shells contained a rolled up piece of paper with this statement written in uh, the Czech language. Or, uh, and the note read, this is all we can do for now. What they had done to protect their allies was not fill those shells with powder and explosives, but left them empty. That was their part in trying to win the effort, the war effort. You know, sometimes we feel like what we do is very little in comparison to others. We read of missionaries who are doing great works in other parts of the world. We hear of other churches that are growing and that are accomplishing great deeds. And we might look at ourselves and say, but we're so little. I'm so insignificant. Not so in the eyes of God. If we would take the attitude of those Czech workers and say, this is all we can do for now. If we do what God has given us to do, then we're being obedient in fulfilling our task. You might not feel like you're on the front line spiritually, but if you're walking with Christ, if you're a light in a dark place, you are being a part of the fulfilling of the great commission here in this field, the world. God help us that we would be busy when the Lord comes and find us doing exactly what he has given us to do. Amen.